The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, I want to go back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And we're going to begin in looking at verse 17, and we're going to look down through about verse 31. But the subject matter under consideration here is eternal life. Let's, let's get that up front. The subject matter under consideration here is how to inherit eternal life. Read with me in verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, <clears throat> I say that the subject matter is inheriting eternal life or how to inherit eternal life because often we find that that's not the subject matter. Uh, We have to make clear, you know, when we see the word saved or salvation in the scriptures, there's oftentimes what's under consideration is not eternal salvation. That's one of the hallmarks of the of the preaching and teaching of the primitive Baptists down through the years is that there, are, there is more than one kind of salvation discussed and taught in the Word of God. For example, when it says in 2 Peter, I believe it is, where it says that baptism doth now save us, we don't believe that baptism gets us to eternal heaven. But it saves us. It saves us from something. It, it's the answer of a clean conscience, we're told, unto God. When Paul says in Acts, the second chapter, save yourselves, or Peter says in Acts, the second chapter, save yourselves from this untoward or crooked generation, we don't believe that's talking about doing something to get ourselves to heaven. There are many places in the scripture that teaches us about what we would call timely or temporal salvation, that is being delivered from things here and now by doing something that is in accord with God's Word. Another quick example is drunkenness. You know, we can be delivered from drunkenness by not drinking. (laughs) Uh, You know, we can be delivered from drug addiction by not doing drugs. See, we can be saved from those things by doing something here and now. But in the case that we're looking at today... I think it's important that we understand that what is under consideration here today is indeed eternal life. It is indeed how to inherit eternal life. Jesus doesn't take something that somebody says usually and twist it around and change it into something different. In matter of fact, we see that Jesus, um, <laughs> Jesus is so amazing. You know, we said recently in one of the messages on the book of Mark that he is a personal, living, real Savior. And he is personal to you and I, and he is interested in the things we're interested in. When we get something burdening us, it burdens him. He gets interested in it, and he doesn't just dismiss it and say, you're wrong and you're stupid and go away and get better. Generally, Jesus deals with us according to the way of our thinking. So, now, 
I believe here it is clear that eternal salvation is under consideration because that's what this rich young ruler uh, is thinking about. In fact, if you look back in Matthew and read the account there, he actually says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And since it was on this rich young ruler's mind, we, we see and must assume, and I believe rightly so, that it was on the Lord's mind. And I want you to notice verses 18 as we keep reading here. Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now let's stop right there and let's notice something before we go any further. You notice that Jesus answered this young man in accordance with his way of thinking, the young man's way of thinking. And that's usually the way he deals with us. And I'm so glad. Now, <clears throat> what, before, before we go any farther, let me say what Jesus is not doing here, as we're going to see, he's not telling this young man that there is indeed something that he can do to inherit eternal life. But what he's doing is, is he's answering him in accordance with his thinking, and he's about to ask him some questions. He's, you know, we, call, we call this the Socratic method. And when I went to law school, one of the first things they taught us was that the way you're going to be taught here is through the Socratic method. And that goes back to Socrates. He taught by asking questions. He taught by, by making the, his, his listeners think for themselves instead of just telling them the answer, making them reason it out, okay? And that's the Socratic method, but it's actually the Jesus method. If you notice, Jesus often taught in that way. It's, Socrates may have been the first one in history that used it, but Jesus uh, is the one who uh, perfected it. Let's just put it that way. And, and I've, I'll never forget something that Brother Sonny Pyle said one time. And don't, I love this statement about heresies. He said, if you'll just reason a heresy out to its logical conclusion, it'll die a natural death. Now think about that. If you'll take a heresy, you take the wrong way of thinking, and you'll just reason that wrong way of thinking out uh, to its natural conclusion. You just go from step one to step two, what logically follows, then when you get to the end of it, it will have died a natural death. No heresy, no untruth, no wrong way of thinking will stand in the face of the truth of God's Word. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He begins to answer this young man in accordance with his way of thinking. And since it was the way he was thinking, Jesus comes down and he, he says, Okay, uh, well, uh, you, you know the commandments. And he, he lays them out for him. And then he says, Master, I've done all this. I've kept all this. But now I want you to notice verse 21, which brings us to the topic and the title of our message today. Then Jesus, beholding him, said unto him, One thing thou lackest. One thing thou lackest. Beloved, this morning, I want us to think about that fact that probably this is the most profound truth that the Lord has taught thus far in his ministry. One thing thou lackest. You know, people who come to the Lord thinking to achieve eternal life by their own efforts are usually lacking one thing. 
One thing. And Jesus, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, is going to clear up any misunderstanding about the origin of eternal life just a little bit later on, down in about verse 27. But notice what he told him. He says, one thing thou lackest. One thing. So let's look at this uh, account here, this encounter between Jesus and this, this rich young man here who, who came to him uh, seeking to do something to inherit eternal life. Notice the seeker's question. Back in verse 17, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to notice something about this young man. He was not lacking in zeal and earnestness in his quest. He came running, we're told, in verse 17. Jesus was walking along with his disciples, and this young man did not want to miss him. No doubt he'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard about this great teacher that had come uh, to Israel, this great teacher that had come to Jerusalem and had, had begun, begun going around doing all things well and teaching all kinds of truths that the scribes and the Pharisees had been missing out on. And we're told that he came running to him. He didn't just sashay over and say, oh, hey, this is interesting. I'll go kind of check this out. You know, big deal, but... Not, not too big a deal, but I'll just kind of go see what's going on. No, he was passionate. He had a zeal. And when he came to him, he knelt before Jesus. He fell at his feet. He fell at his feet. This was clearly a matter that had been burdening this young man. <clears throat> you know, in Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Uh, and uh, he begins to describe what it's like to be dead in trespasses and in sins. He says, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. We've seen people walking according to the course of the world in the life of Jesus here. They were the scribes and the Pharisees and they tried to trick him. They tried to tempt him. They, they were walking in accordance with the, uh, uh, in, in, according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In the eighth chapter of John, you'll read about some men that Jesus looked at and said, Ye are of your father the devil. They were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, were they not? The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And he goes on to describe what that means even more. Verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past. How? In the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There's a, there's a place over in the 13th chapter of Acts where Paul goes to preach on Mars. I'm sorry, it's the 17th chapter of Acts where Paul goes to preach on Mars Hill. And it's said of those Greeks there that they were, they were up to nothing else. They loved nothing better than to hear or to tell some new thing. They were following the lusts of their minds. They were all into philosophy. They were all into the ways of this world's thinking. The lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But this man, this man was different. This man was interested in some things that the Pharisees didn't care about. The Pharisees didn't care about inheriting eternal life. They thought they had it. They thought they were born to it because, hey, we're, we're Israelites. Y'all are all going to hell, but we're Israelites. By blood, we get to go to heaven. We're better than everybody else. 
You know, there was a, there was a young Pharisee, or a, I guess a young Pharisee, he was standing down front in the temple and he was lifting up his eyes toward heaven and praying thus with himself, Lord, I thank thee I'm not like all these other people. I give tithes, I do right. I, I'm not like this publican back here. <laughs> oh, he thought he didn't need eternal salvation. He thought he had it. He wasn't interested in those things. But this man here, this man came running. <laughs> he was interested in the things of the Spirit. We're told in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 that the fruits of the Spirit are listed there. Love, joy, peace, faith. All these things are fruits of the Spirit. And let me, let me just remind ourselves this morning, not that you need reminding because I believe you believe this, but it's not the fruit that makes the tree. It's the tree that makes the fruit. An apple tree doesn't become an apple tree by bearing an apple. It's already an apple tree, and that's why it bears the apple fruit. The tree bears the fruit, not the fruit, the tree. I've seen many barren apple trees. My daddy was many things, but a, but a man who could raise an orchard, he was not. <laughs> he, didn't, he never could get trees. He, never, he could plant them, but we never could get them to grow right, never could get them to put forth right. He always struggled with that. He'd have to call some his uncles or, or somebody else to come help him. But uh, I've seen many barren apple trees, but they were still apple trees. They just weren't bearing any fruit. But when the fruit comes forth, it's proof of what the tree already is, you see. This man was not lacking in zeal. He, you know, we're told over in Romans 10 that there were some people there that had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They were passionate, and the, and the passion was of God. It was something that had come from God. But they were going about to establish their own righteousness and had not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of Christ. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This young man here had a zeal of God, and he came running. He was, lacking, he was not lacking in zeal. He was not lacking in earnestness, but he was clearly lacking in knowledge. He was lacking an understanding of the truth about how to be eternally saved. As I've already said, there were those in Romans chapter 10, you read the first three or four verses sometime, they were going about to establish their own righteousness and they had not submitted themselves under the righteousness of Christ. Now I know Christ hadn't died yet here, but all of those Old Testament sacrifices, every time on the Day of Atonement that the, the, that the high priest had taken a, a little lamb in there and sacrificed it on the altar, that was a picture pointing them to Jesus Christ. We can't do it ourselves. The blood of bulls and goats can't put away sins. It reminds us that we're sinners. But we've got to have a sacrifice that's perfect one day. And I, I want to ask you something about this young man. I know sometimes people take this and try to prove from this that there's things you must do in order to go to heaven. But as we read this passage... I want you to ask yourself a question. Was this young man satisfied with his efforts to this point in his life? Was he satisfied with keeping the whole law? Listen to what it, Jesus said. You know the commandments. And he, he lists most of them. And the man, says, the man says, hey, I've kept those. 
Well, if you've kept those and that's the way to get to heaven, why are you coming to Jesus? Why are you still running in, with this kind of zeal and burden to come to Him and say, what must I do? What good thing must I do to be saved? If you're satisfied, just go your way and enjoy life. But see, He clearly, He clearly was not satisfied with His own efforts. And beloved, let me just say this morning, neither will you be satisfied with your own efforts. If you're trying to work your way to heaven. You know, grace and, wa- and, grace and works mix about like oil and water. <laughs> you don't believe me? Look over in the 11th chapter of Romans sometime about verse 6. <laughs> if it's of grace, it's no more works. If it's of works, it's no more grace. You can't mix them. They don't work. But now I want us to look for the rest of our time here at the Savior's response. The Savior's response. We see the seeker's questions here, but look at the Savior's response. And he made several points, about five points that I want us to look at this morning. And I hope when we see these points, we'll understand several things about Jesus. Most importantly, what a loving and complete Savior he is. Notice the first point. He says in verse 18, why callest thou me good? You know, right here, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, buddy, you, I, I, can, I can just see a little grin on his face. The guy comes running. He said, Lord, what good thing must I do to be saved? And he falls at his feet, got his, maybe got his head bowed there, and he's burdened down with this. And I can just see Jesus looking down at him and just almost a little smile in the corner of his mouth. And he's saying, why do you call me good? It's almost like he's saying, man, you've got the answer right there in front of you. <laughs> You wouldn't even be asking this question if you weren't already in possession of eternal life. Why are you calling me good? 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Son, you see that you need eternal life. Where did you get that knowledge from? Why are you coming to me in the first place? There must be something in you already. Because you know what he teaches in another place, in the sixth chapter of John? He says, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. So here's a man who's come to Jesus. You can't come to Jesus unless you've been drawn to the Father. Why you call me good? (laughs) I just see that sweet little loving smile break open on his face. Why you call me good? Remember the thief on the cross? Casting the same mocking and scourging. I mean, he's he's ridiculing Jesus. Now listen, there wasn't one good thief and one bad thief. There were two bad thieves. Matthew 27, read it sometime. Both of them were casting the same mocking and cursing in his face while they hung there on the cross with him. And then something happened. Something happened. And suddenly, you know, what, you know what the thief said that he hadn't been saying before? He said to his, to his buddy over there that was still cursing and mocking him, he said, he said, why are you doing this? When you see that we're justly condemned. We are justly condemned. And this man had done nothing amiss. Oh, what a revelation. <laughs> what a change in his way of thinking. What a, what a burden he suddenly had. 
What's happened to him? Same thing that's happened to this young man. And the second point he immediately makes here, he says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. (laughs) You know, what he's doing here is that Jesus is reaffirming the main point of eternal salvation. God is good and we are not. <clears throat> you want to know about the sum up eternal salvation uh, in, in, a, in a nutshell, so to speak? God is good and we are not. You see, the holiness of God and the depravity of man must always be the starting point of a proper understanding of eternal salvation. Now, you say they didn't have the New Testament then, and he certainly didn't, but he had Isaiah 64 and verse 6, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Master, what good thing must I do? What act of righteousness must I perform, in other words, in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus easily could have gone back to Isaiah 64 and said, Son, all the righteousnesses you could ever do are but filthy rags in the sight of God. You see, there's none good except God. That's what he tells us. Paul Paul elaborates on that over in Romans chapter 3. And and listen to what he says in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They say, come to Jesus. You won't seek Him in the flesh. You won't try. You're not interested in Him in the flesh. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. See, there's none good, Jesus said, but God. He's the only one good. Not you, young man, not anyone else here, just God. Not Peter, not Paul, not not the Pope, not anyone that you can name. Just God. Tim, my brother, preached a message one time. Brother Glennon and I uh, have talked about it many times since then. And the title of the message was Just One, Just One. (laughs) Think about that. There was just one, just one. There was only one that was holy and just. Only one. And it wasn't this young man, you see. He said, you got to remember this. And then, I tell you, the third point is probably the most uh, important point of all. (laughs) He says, basically, if you don't believe me, just try it. Now, I don't recommend this, but if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that, that there's only one just one, there's only one good, and that's God, if you think there's something you can do, just try it. Listen to what Jesus said. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Just do that. <laughs> Just do that. There's only one good, but if you don't believe me, try it. Keep them. Keep them. And, and this man, having been no doubt brought up under the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees of that day, he, he thought he'd done it. He said, I've observed all these from my youth. But as I've already said, Beloved, implicit in this man's urgency was a feeling of inadequacy in his own efforts. Hey, I've done all this, but 
but I'm still not satisfied. Beloved, I promise you, you can set forth today. I don't care how old you are. Maybe you're a young person. Set forth today in an effort to keep the whole law completely. Do all the best that you can. And it won't be long before you're very dissatisfied with your own efforts. It won't be long before you're, you're back to the place where this young man is kneeling at the feet of Jesus because you're not satisfied with the efforts that you've been putting in. And then he said in verse 21, one thing, one thing thou lackest. This is the third, this is the fourth point. One thing thou lackest. Now, did he lack enough zeal? No, he had, he had plenty of zeal. Did he lack enough money? Well, we're going to see this man had riches galore. Did he lack enough good works? Well, apparently not. He'd kept all the law up to this point in an outward sense. So what was it that he lacked? What is it that most people lack when they come to Jesus trying to, trying to win their own way to heaven? He lacked a right understanding of his own inability and God's complete capability. See, he was completely unable to do that which he needed the most. His works were unassailable outwardly, but his heart was condemned inwardly. And Jesus, as only Jesus can, and as only He does, He exposes His problem for exactly what it was. It was a heart problem. See, He could keep all of those outward commandments, but it was that last commandment that got Him. He said in verse 21, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow Me. Jesus knew He didn't have trouble killing people. He didn't have a problem with robbing banks. He didn't have a problem with stealing or defrauding or lying. Oh, but He had a problem with the greed and the lust in his heart. He had a problem. His problem was a heart problem. And beloved, I want to say to you this morning, our problem at its root cause is a heart problem. It's not a hand problem. It's not being, going out there and doing things. You, we, we all commit sin, yes. I know that. I'm not saying we're sinless in our actions. We all commit some kind of sin every day. But the primary problem is not the, the sins we commit with our hands, it's the sins that are hidden in our hearts. That's our problem. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that young man had a problem that wasn't outwardly manifest, but he knew that he, he knew how to ask the right questions, didn't he? I love the way the Lord is able to do that. There was a woman at a well who came to see him, and he knew exactly what question to ask. He said, he said, I'll tell you what you do. You go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. She had a problem. She had a problem that she didn't think the Lord knew about, but he knew all about it. And he said, you're right. I'm glad you were honest with me. You've had five husbands, and now you're living with a guy that's not your husband. You know what? That changed a whole lot in her life, didn't it? That, that one encounter, I want to tell you, beloved, an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ is a life-changing event. <clears throat> she went away preaching the truth of God's sovereign grace. Come see a man who told me all things whatsoever I've done. This man is the very Christ. He's the very God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. 
Oh, he, and he loves me. <laughs> he loves me. You know, that's the most important point probably we could ever make as a, as a, uh, as a church, as people of God. Is, you know, I remember Brother Sam Bryant talking about the great theologian. I believe it was D.L. Moody. Someone asked him one time in his later years, after years and decades of Bible study and learning and theology and all kinds of degrees, a young apprentice, a young pupil looked at him and said, what's the greatest truth you've learned from the scriptures? He said, the greatest truth I've learned from the scriptures is Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple. But you know, what a glorious truth that is. One thing thou lackest, he said to this man. You see, the problem is not an outward problem. The problem is a, is a heart problem. Paul had the same problem. Over in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says in verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. He said, Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. Now listen to this. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. See, Paul was just like this young ruler here, this rich young man. He kept all the law. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had been raised at the feet of one of the greatest teachers of that day, one of the greatest rabbis, Gamaliel. He, 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 he was unassailable in his moral, outward moral stance. Oh, but when, when you start talking about the heart, Paul had the same problem that this young ruler had. And by the way, we've got the same problem as well. See, it's a heart problem. He said, I didn't even know I had sinned till I read, Thou shalt not covet. That's, see, all those nine first commandments, they talk about what you're doing. But that last commandment talks about what you're thinking, <clears throat> what you're feeling, what's in your heart, you see. <clears throat> you see, Jesus is saying to this young man, discipleship is the issue not sonship. Notice as we read verse 21 again. Then Jesus, beholding him, said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. And notice what happened here. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. So I guess... Because he rejected Jesus' invitation, he died and went to hell. Is that what this is teaching? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Because you see, I left a little part out when I read verse, verse 21. I, I skipped over just a little phrase, but I want to tell you, beloved, it's an important phrase. It didn't just say that Jesus looked at him and said some things to him. This, it said, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Loved him. This was one that Jesus loved. This is one that Jesus was going to die for on the cross. I don't believe that anyone that Jesus loved will ever see even the gates of hell, much less be cast therein for eternity. He says that the angel Gabriel told Joseph to, uh, when Joseph was struggling with whether to, to, to continue in this marriage with, uh, uh, with Mary, he said, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. 
Beloved, he is going to accomplish that for which he came. And what he came to do is to save every single one he loved. More on that in a minute, but just understand, this is one of God's children. This is one that he loved with an everlasting love. But the issue is not sonship. It's not a relationship with God. The issue is discipleship. The issue is fellowship with God. And this young man was sad and he went away grieved for he had great possessions. What a sad account this is. But do you know how many times this same account plays out today? Do you know how many times this same account plays out in the world today where one who is burdened about their sins, one who has the conviction, if you want to call it that, of being a sinner, they, they are burdened down and they, they hear the truth, they see, hear the true gospel and they go away because to embrace the gospel, the true gospel would cause them to lose so many things out there in the world. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, <clears throat> we're going to get to that in a minute because this is about discipleship. Just understand that when you embrace the true gospel and let go of the things of the world, you achieve and, and receive more than you ever dreamed possible. But notice what Jesus does. He looked around in verse 23. He looked around and bowed and saith to his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Now, now notice, I, I just got to say this. This is early on in his ministry. They've been with him for a while, but, uh, but you know, these disciples still don't get it. You're going to see that as we keep, keep reading here. They're still expecting Jesus to win the masses over so they can retake the temple, they can retake Jerusalem, and they can throw off the yoke of Rome. And you can't do that without money. You can't hardly, you know, you can't, run a, you can't run a war without funding. That's one of the things that happens in a wartime uh, situation. Back in World War II, one of the big things that, that was uh, prevalent throughout the land was the sale of war bonds. People were encouraged to buy war bonds to fund the war efforts. You've got to have money. But Jesus looks around and said, it is, it's, how hardly, it's so hard for them that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished. They couldn't believe he was saying this. I can almost see him saying, Shh, Lord, don't be teaching that now. We need money. <laughs> we need funding. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Now remember the topic that the young ruler, the rich young man came to Jesus about was how to get to heaven. And that's what the disciples are thinking. That's what they're, that's what they're focused upon. That's what they've heard. Jesus has been asking the man questions and reasoning out his, his, his heresy to its logical conclusion, and it, it'll die a natural death as it has. He, he's never satisfied with what he's done. He's not satisfied with his efforts, certainly not satisfied with what Jesus said that he needs to do in order to follow him in discipleship. And these 
disciples say, who then can be saved? And I believe they're referring to eternal salvation here. That's what they've been hearing. That's what they've been discussing. And Jesus, in his last point here, makes it clear that eternal salvation can only be accomplished by God. Listen to this. Jesus, looking upon them, saith, saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Praise God. I told you at the beginning, he clears up any misunderstanding about eternal life. These, these two verses right here should settle any question about how eternal salvation comes to be. And it sheds light on all that Jesus has been teaching in his lead up to this point. The linchpin here of salvation truth is that with men it is impossible. It is impossible for this young ruler to do some good thing in order to inherit eternal life. It is impossible for him to keep the whole law because even if he can keep it in an outward sense, he cannot keep it in his heart. That last one will get him every time. It is impossible for us to bring the filthy rags of our own righteousnesses to God and expect somehow for that to cause us to be inheritors of eternal life. But you see, with men it's impossible, but praise God, not with God. <laughs> For with God, all things are possible. Jesus says to the uh, Pharisees and to some of his disciples in the 10th chapter of the book of John, he says, For without me, ye can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Uh, we were quickened, even, uh, he says, uh, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. The dead don't need a doctor. The dead need a resurrector. <laughs> the dead need a savior. The dead need life. They don't need healing. You see, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. Not with God. And you know, isn't that the great blessing of knowing the truth? What, what did he say about knowing the truth? He said, ye shall know the truth, John eight thirty two. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Does he mean it'll set you free from the curse of sin, from the eternal consequences of sin? No. No. Because nothing you do, nothing you know, nothing you say, no choice you make will ever bring you from a position of death to a position of life. But see, what it will do is it will free your soul up in this life. Instead of going about to establish your own righteousness, as we're told over in Romans chapter 10 that those Jews were doing, you will understand that the righteousness that you have is of Christ. Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Eternally? Coming in to do something to be? No, no. He says, I bear them record they have a zeal of God. There's something in their hearts that, that gravitates them toward God, but it's not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness 
and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. <laughs> See, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You have, do you know somebody who is doing their best to try to work their way to heaven? Or maybe they, maybe they think they're on the way to heaven. They're doing everything they can to try to keep themselves on the path to heaven. Because they're afraid that if something happens, if they do something wrong, if they don't repent of it in time, if they, don't, if they do too many bad things, that eventually the Lord will cast them out and they'll end up in hell. You see, that's not the God of this Bible. That's not the Jesus that this man came to. I know he went away, but it's even as he went away, Jesus loved him. He loved this man. No one that Jesus loves will ever be in hell. And then Jesus goes on to talk with Peter. Peter asked him in verse 28, he began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. You would think that the necessary component of the kingdom of God would be as many rich people as you can come up with. In order to facilitate the building of a building like this, in order to facilitate the proclamation of the gospel out there, you would think that the most important thing would be the high ranking and the, 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 uh, the money makers, those that are rich in this world's goods. But Jesus says it's hard for someone who's rich to come into the kingdom of God. It's hard for them to be a disciple. It's hard for them to, uh, to be. In fact, it's, uh, it's an act of God that they're saved eternally in the first place. It's an act of God because it's impossible for them to achieve salvation in this life, eternal salvation. It must be done by God. And how many people do we know that are rich in this world's goods and that shun the kingdom of God because they're too burdened down with the things of this world? Peter comes to him and says, Lord, we've given up everything. You, you know, you're, you're saying if the rich folks can't really do much here, what about us? What about those who have given up everything? This man went away sorrowing. But what about us? What happens in our situation? We're just like him. We struggle in this world. We've got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Just like this rich young ruler. We've got secular concerns out there. We've got family that don't believe like we do we've got friends that don't believe like we do we got uh we got to go out and go to work we have to take care of our families we got things to do out there just like this rich young ruler but what about us we've given up all of that in the sense that we have forsaken it in our focus while we still have they still fished from time to time they still uh, uh did things in this world but their focus was on the kingdom of god they sought first the kingdom of god what about us what about us? Paul, over in the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippian church, he described it this way. 
He said in chapter 3 and verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. We know what dung is. We know what value is put on that in the world. That's the value. You know, and he's talking about the gold of this world, the things of this world. He considered it to be but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What Jesus is doing here as we bring this to a close is he's elaborating on the blessings of discipleship. Peter says, Lord, we've given everything up. Notice what they've given up. All. They've given it all up. But Jesus says, you may have given up all the world's things, but you've got so much more in the kingdom. Have you lost friends because of the kingdom of God? I guarantee you, you've gained more friends in the kingdom than you ever would have had outside the kingdom. Have you lost family? Have you lost brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, or children for the kingdom of God? Oh, beloved, there's a reason we call each other brother and sister in here, because we're a family. You may have lost family. Oh, but the family you've gained is so much greater, so much more glorious. Oh, what a blessing it is for brethren and sisters to dwell together in harmony. What a blessing it is. I have family, blood-related family that I would give just, I'm like, I feel like the Apostle Paul said, I would wish myself accursed from the kingdom, that they might come into the kingdom and enjoy the kingdom. And it hurts me not to be able to have the fellowship with them that I want. But when I come to the house of God on a morning like this, especially when I've been away and I see your faces and I get to be with you, I realize I've got brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children here in this kingdom that I'll never, that, that the world can't touch. Even my own family. Nothing like this, beloved. He says... You'll receive a hundredfold now in this time. I'll tell you my experience in, in coming here to Zion and coming to the Primitive Baptist. I know I've shared this with you before, but there were several times before Zion where I, I took a trip with the family out to California. <clears throat> First time we did that, we drove out there in 2003. And I, you know, being the father of the family and the leader of the household, I felt responsible for, for these little kids. Mason wasn't but 20 months old and Meredith was about seven or eight years old and and the others were in between. And, and here we were in California, Brother Glendon. I mean, you know how far the other side of Meridian, Mississippi that is. <laughs> That's a long ways, beloved. That's a long ways. I'd looked at my, looked at my odometer, and it was about 3,000 miles we'd put on our van. And, and we were headed up to one of the national parks up through that central valley. And, and, and it hit me. It's like, what in the world am I doing in California? <laughs> you know, I'm out here. I don't know anybody. I don't know anyone out here. If I were to have a blowout on the car or if I were to have car trouble of some sort, I would be stuck out here with no one. That was in 2003. We went back a couple of times after that. And then in 2011, Brother Mackey, I joined Zion Primitive Baptist Church. 
You know how many times I've preached among the saints of God out in California since then? I, several times, eight or ten times. You know how many primitive Baptist preachers I know from California? Several of them have come here. Got a whole church in Nevada, out in Las Vegas that we know. We went through Las Vegas that time. Didn't know anybody. <laughs> Felt like, sure enough, like country come to town, I'll tell you. <laughs> So we went back a few years ago, back in about 2015 or 16, and we took a trip. We, we went out to Las Vegas and spent a week with the Las Vegas church, and then we, we rented a vehicle, and we drove right back up that Central Valley again, going to that same national park. And I, I, I was riding up through there, and, and I come to a sign that says, Lindsay, California. And, and instead, of, instead of that fear of being so far from home, I looked at that, and I just a wave of emotion of warmth just flew all over me. I said, that's where Brother Matt Sunstegard preaches. Hey, we could stop and see him. Or if we have trouble, I could call. We keep going on up a little further, and I see a sign for Madeira, California. That's where Elder Tracy Fredrickson pastors a church. You know, beloved, I gained brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and family beyond my imagination. I come into the kingdom of God. Oh, how blessed it is. You know, I'm so thankful that Jesus loved even me. And I'm so thankful. I'm not better than that rich young ruler. I'm not any different than him, but I'm just thankful the Lord blessed me to see the treasure in the field. And to lay, lay aside, to understand that one thing that he lacked and that I lacked as well, which was the ability to save myself. That the ability of the world to save me, that that doesn't work. <laughs> I'm so thankful that the Lord blessed me to come into the kingdom. I'm so thankful he gave us this account here that we might understand what it is that saves us eternally and where it is that we can enjoy that eternal salvation here and now. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.